Well, as has already been mentioned, uh, I'll be missing all of you uh, for the next three Sundays. Um, that will be sad, but maybe a week at a resort in Virginia in the Shenandoah Valley playing golf on Mountain Greens Golf Course will help me get over it. Um, and, and I do hope that we get back into the country without issue. Um, the time will tell on that. How many of you remember uh, singing in church a worship song entitled Trust and Obey? Do you realize what that says about your age? Well, anyway, we don't, we don't have to think about that. Um, it's been a while uh, since I've, I've sung it in church, but it, it's one of the songs uh, that, we, that we sang in well, for the longest time in church. And, um, and the words have stuck with me in, in a way that not every song does. And so I, I, I remember the trust and obey, uh, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Now, as, as I ponder that, I think... That simple phrase, trust and obey, gets to the heart of what it means to live by faith. It means to trust that God's promises are true and he will keep them for our good and his glory. And to trust the reality that his commands are for our good as well as his glory. That in fact his commands are the way of life that is for a human flourishing, to be the, the human beings God made us to be. And, and therefore, to obey. As, as we, we believe God's promise, and we believe in the worth of God's commands, we, we live obediently. Last week, we started our look at Abraham as the paradigm of what it means to live by faith. And, and that was a to-be-continued sermon. So, I, as I pointed out last week, in Hebrews 11, in the Abraham section, four times the writer says, by faith, and then describes the reality of Abraham's life and experience, four different facets of what it means to live by faith. So, last week we saw, first of all, that living by faith means I, I, I am willing to accept the uncertainty of the future that lies behind my decisions, un it's uncertain to me. And I can live with that because I trust in God's promise to work all things together for my good. And so we don't have to know everything that lies beyond the next step of doing the will of God. God knows that, and so we trust him. And then secondly, we learned that living by faith means, means that sometimes we wait patiently for God to act to fulfill his purposes. And, and so we, we continue obeying him and serving him as we know his will now while we wait for God to act, maybe wanting God to act much more quickly than he is acting. Think of a pastoral search committee, for example, um, and, and, a, 
and serving now, faithfully doing the right things, but patiently waiting for God to act. So those are the first two facets the writer talks about. This week, it's the rest of the story, to use the Paul Harvey phrase. If you still remember him, you may be as old as I am, who knows? So, so we turn then to the, this, those, the latter verses of the Abraham section in Hebrews 11. And, and so we read verses 11 and 12, and then 17 to 19. So starting at verse 11. By faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. And then down to verse 17. By faith, for the fourth time, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So, verses 11 and 12. By faith there tells us living by faith means believing that God can do what's humanly impossible to achieve his purposes. Now, first of all, a technical matter. Probably, uh, I mean, there, there may well be multiple Bible translations within the room today. And in verse 11, there, there's, an, there's a debate, a translation debate as to whether the subject of, this, of the sentence is Abraham or Sarah. The original NIV translation uh, had Abraham as the subject. My updated NIV translation has Sarah as the subject. Now, I could, I could take the time to go into detail and tell you why I think that Abraham is the actual subject. And so it re would read something like, by faith, Abraham, even though he was too old to have children and Sarah herself was not able to conceive, and so on. But, but you probably don't want to stay until two in the afternoon so I can develop all the interpretive arguments about that. And in fact, it, 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 it really doesn't make a difference in the end because it was, it was the same promise of God that Abraham and Sarah believed. And the promise was, the promise was that God would provide a son to Abraham and Sarah, their real biological son. Even though Abraham was, was on the cusp of the century mark, Sarah was 90 years old. In other words, they were not prospects for the fertility clinic. And so the idea 
that they would have a son of their own was simply humanly impossible. And yet, when we go back to, to Genesis, we go back to chapter 17, we find in that chapter that, that, that God renews his covenant promise with Abraham. It's about the fourth time there. It's chapter 12, 13, 15, now chapter 17. He renews the promise again, and, and he institutes these, the covenant sign of circumcision. And, and in the midst of all that, he says to Abraham, your wife Sarai is now going to be called Sarah, which is a more appropriate name for someone who is going to be the mother of nations. And when Abraham heard that promise of God, he laughed. He laughed. I'm 100 years old, virtually. Sarah's 90. Are, are you, this is crazy. And so God said there, his name will be Isaac, which means in Hebrew, he laughs. You may have thought God had no sense of humor. Now you know differently. So he says, the son's going to, going to be named Isaac, the verb meaning laughter. And he says, I'm making this covenant promise to you. A year from now, you're going to have that son. In chapter 18... God now shows up in, in a temporary embodied form, what we call a theophany. Three, three such beings show up, two of whom are angels, uh, who will go on to Sodom in chapter 19, the third of whom is, is apparently God temporarily manifesting himself in bodily form to speak to Abraham again. And when he renews the promise, this time Sarah Laughs. Sarah's at the tent door. She hears it, cannot restrain herself. She laughs at the thought. Now, a few verses later, we find the Lord saying that you laughed, and she says, oh, no, I didn't really laugh. It was only a chuckle. It wasn't really laughter. And in Genesis 21, Isaac is born in fulfillment of the promise, and there we read, Sarah laughs in a new way. She laughs in, in joy and, and, uh, and astonishment and thanksgiving that God has kept this promise to do what's humanly impossible. And she says, everyone else is going to laugh with me. They called him laughter because no other name would do. That's in a Michael Card song, by the way. Another good song. So the writer is saying, look, this is part of what living by faith means. God said to this man, the writer says, as good as dead. That's putting it pretty plainly. Came descendants who were uncountably great in number as God promised. God did what was humanly impossible, and by faith, Abraham and Sarah believed that he would do it, and God did. Now, the writer is obviously saying, that's a paradigm, that's a pattern, and, but you and I are called as new covenant believers to live by faith as well, so we must believe 
with them that God can do what's humanly impossible. Now, that's a point at which I think, I think we need to make sure we understand. Faith means believing what God has promised. It doesn't mean creating promises for God. So that we manipulate God by saying, well, I'm going to believe that you're going to give me that Lamborghini. And if I ask for it with enough faith, you'll do it. Now, the Gospels do record a couple of sayings of Jesus where he says things like, whatever you ask for, believe that you have it and it's yours. That's there in the text. And, and so, unfortunately, some believers have, have failed to recognize there's a kind of figure of speech going on here. We call it hyperbole, a kind of intended exaggeration that the speaker and the hearers all understand is, is stated in an incredibly forceful way to make a point. So, if... If someone says to you, look, if you, if you do this, I'll give you anything you want. You may be a parent bribing a child, I don't know. But you may say a thing like that. Everyone who's a thinking person recognizes there's an overstatement going on there. The point of it is to say, don't set any limits on what I can do for you. And that's Jesus' point. Don't set any limits on what you ask God for. Because God can do what's humanly impossible. Whatever amount of power is required to make anything happen, God's power is greater than that. Because God's power is infinite. But it means believing God will do what he's promised. Now, we must not create promises for God, but if we take seriously who God is and what living by faith means, then we will at least believe that God can do those seemingly impossible things that we want to ask him for. Can God heal that disease no matter what it is? Yes, he can. Can God revive the church, the congregation, the denomination, the church nationwide to a new level of faithfulness and commitment and effectiveness? Yes. Can God bring about mass conversion, genuine conversions of people and, and a transformation of a culture? God has done it before. God can do it again. Don't set limits on what you ask God for. I, I wish I could say that I, I just have 10,000 examples to give from my own experience of, of such things. I, I probably don't have that many. But there, there have been a couple of very... Uh, very powerful experiences of mine in, in relation to my ministry at, at Heritage College and Seminary. In fact, 
in, in the run-up to creating that school by a merger and in the ongoing life of the school. I was, from 1989 to 1993, I, I was the academic dean and either functionally or officially interim president at Central Baptist Seminary in Toronto, learning everything I never wanted to know about crisis management. Now, in the midst of all that, I, I was convinced that, that God did not want evangelical Baptists in Ontario to be divided in a, in a way that meant they were spending their resources on two different schools, one in London, London Baptist Bible College and Seminary, and one in Toronto, Central Baptist Seminary. I was convinced, frankly, that the two ought to merge. Now, that was, that was no small task because the London's, the Central Baptist Seminary in Toronto was formed in 1949 in an unfortunate way out of a split at Toronto Baptist Seminary. And, it, and, and the London school began in 1976 largely as a protest against Central Baptist Seminary in Toronto. So for years, the schools kind of lobbed grenades over the hill at one another. And... Um, and occasionally, the school hockey teams played each other and took it out on each other. And, and then, but then things began to warm up a little bit. So I still remember the board meeting at Central Baptist Seminary in Toronto when I said to them, look, I am convinced that, that God would be pleased if, if we would find a way to do it together and not excuses to perpetuate division. We ought to approach the London leadership and asked them to discuss a possible merger. And they all looked at me as if to say, and what planet did you fly in from? And then the patriarch on the board, a dear brother, longtime leader in our fellowship of churches said, Stan, donkeys will fly first. Well, the first, the first conversation happened between me and Marvin Brubaker at NBC in June 1992. By November 1992, the Joint Committee of the Boards had approved in principle a merger plan. And it all became reality in 1993. God did a really powerful thing there. And I, several times after the merger all happened and Heritage was alive and well, I, I would have a conversation with that dear patriarch of the board, and I would say to him, have you seen those donkeys flying overhead? And we had a good laugh about that. More recently, God showed up in a very powerful way at Heritage. Um, and this, after my, my retirement from my full-time duties, the, the administration became convinced that the, the seminary portion of the school, 
there are Bible college and the seminary portion. The seminary portion has now become larger than the college, has significantly grown, has, I think, in many ways become the seminary of choice for conservative evangelicals in Ontario and even beyond. And so they said, look, we need more space. We need a dedicated seminary building. So Rick Reed, our president, talked to a, a friend of his who was a, a kind of a new friend of the school and said, look, we, we need to raise $10 million. Uh, that's the figure we have in mind in order to make this happen. And this friend said, I'll, um, I'll give $5 million and, and I will match other donations up to 2,500, which would bring it all up to 10 million. Wow, that's quite a start. So a few days later, Rick was talking to a longtime donor to the school and told him that. And the longtime donor said, look, you, you need to do this. You don't need to spend forever seeking to raise that other 2,500. I'll donate that. And instantly, we had the pledge, $10 million. Unfortunately, the COVID pandemic hit, and so things have been, the plans kind of got in the background, but now they're revving up again. And some of you may hear about that very soon. Who would have thought it? But God can do what's humanly impossible. And then the fourth and final point in verse 17 to 19. There, there we learn that living by faith means I'm willing to obey God's command, to do God's will, even if the results appear to be disastrous. And so here, the writer takes us back to Genesis 22 and that incredible story that we just heard read earlier in our service. When God says to Abraham, take Isaac, your son, and I want you to go to Mount Moriah and offer him up there as a human sacrifice. Now, I'm pretty sure that when you and I read that, the, the thought that goes through our mind, the question that goes through our mind is, how could God possibly command a human sacrifice? I mean, later in the, in the law of Moses, there will be explicit prohibition of that kind of thing, and and it's willfully taking a human life, that's murder. How could God do that? That's the question that hits us immediately, I imagine. And that's an understandable question. But as the writer points out here, the more fundamental promise for Abraham, the problem for Abraham, was that when God said, take Isaac, your son, and offer him as a sacrifice, God's promise and God's command were in lethal combat. 
Because God had said, it's through Isaac, your miraculously provided son, that, 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 I'm, I, that I'm going to uh, renew the covenant. The covenant will go through him. Your offspring that I promise you are going to go through him. Isaac was not yet married, had no children. If Isaac died, how was God going to fulfill his promise? That was the problem, fundamental problem the writer talks about. Obeying God's command would derail what Abraham understood about God's purposes. And so when we go back and read the story in Genesis 22, there are fascinating pieces of it. Abraham takes long servants and Isaac and the wood to make the fire. And, and so they, they get to the mountain and Abraham says to the servants, wait here, we will go up to the mountain and we will come back. We will come back. Abraham believed that somehow God would make all this work right. And then as, as they are getting ready to carry out the deed, Isaac says, we got the wood and the stuff to make the fire. Where's, where's the lamb? And Abraham says, God will provide the lamb. So Abraham believed if God will have to provide an alternative sacrifice if I obey him and get Isaac on that altar. But the writer also says, Abraham reasoned, God gave me this unique miraculously provided son. He did it miraculously. If he has to raise him from the dead, he will do it. And so Abraham obeyed, even though all the results appeared to be bad. Now, this part of living by faith, trusting God in such a way that we obey his command even though the results may seem really bad. This, this is rooted in other parts of Scripture, in particular, I think, in, in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. How many of you have memorized that at some point in your life? And it, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding in all your ways. Acknowledge him. And the King James Version says, and he shall direct thy paths. I don't really like doing this, but I, have, but I have to suggest to you that those verses don't mean exactly what we've often taken them to mean. The last part of it, he shall direct thy paths. Modern translations, I think, get it right. When they all translate it, either he will make your path smooth or he will make your path straight. The point of the two verses is, if you trust in the Lord and obey his word, 
and you live according to His ways rather than your own inclinations, then God will smooth out the, the rough things out of your path. God will deal with the consequences of your obedience and bless you. In fact, if you go to Proverbs 3, read the first 12 verses, you have six pairs of verses, each of which is making that basic point. You ought to trust God's commands and obey them because it's good for you. God will bless you. God will take care of the consequences of your obedience. And so, if you face a situation at work where acting in honesty and integrity might cost you a job or a promotion, you trust God. You obey His command to act honestly. I, I first learned that one in, in one of those summers when I was selling Bible study books door to door. I think I, I mentioned that a few weeks ago. Did that two summers while I was in seminary. Learned a whole lot. And I, I still remember one of the books we sold was the Knave's Topical Bible. And occasionally someone would ask me, because I'm trying to sell it door to door, they would ask, can I buy this in a bookstore? Now, in a bookstore, you could buy a cloth-bound version of the Knave's Topical Bible that was about that thick. But I was selling a, a leather-bound version that was much thinner, much easier to use, which you could not buy in bookstores. So if, when asked that question, I said, no, you can't buy this in a bookstore, Technically, that would be true. But it would really be misleading and deception. So I, I, I had to say, you, you, you can't buy this exact version of it. You can buy a cloth-bound version of it, which is larger and costs less. Now, you know, my, my, my life wasn't totally, you know, at issue there. It's not like I'd have to drop out of seminary if a couple of people decided to go to the bookstore. But it was a point of integrity. Sometimes you may face a much larger issue of integrity. Parents and elders in a church sometimes have to ask Okay, are we going to carry out discipline as necessary here, even though, even though it may produce some bad results with the people we're dealing with? Pastors have to ask, do I teach this truth, even if some people seem alienated by it? Living by faith means I I do the revealed will of God, and I let God take care of the consequences. So if we live by faith, we can accept the reality of an uncertain future, uncertain to us, 
We can wait for God to fulfill his purposes. We believe that God can do what's humanly impossible. And we, we obey God, whatever the apparent results are going to be. And we trust God to deal with the long-term effects. But sometimes, if we're living by faith, it looks like that's the lifestyle of losers. Because we may be waiting so long for God to act, or the problems seem too great to be solved, or the results of obedience really look disastrous. But the writer here is reminding us it's always too soon to quit living by faith. Now, let me use a, an analogy that some of you may care for and some of you may not. The analogy is baseball. Right. I was named after Stan the Man Musial, Hall of Fame outfielder of the St. Louis Cardinals. So baseball has kind of been in my DNA from the beginning. So I, I, I really like the sport. Grew up as a St. Louis Cardinals fan. It's a different kind of bird that I cheer for now. Um, ah, if the Cardinals are playing somebody else, then I root for the Cardinals. But it's the Blue Jays now, of course. But one of the, one of the special features of baseball is there's no clock. There's no clock. So... In the, in the immortal words of the philosopher Yogi Berra, it ain't over till it's over. In other sports that have a clock, the game can be really over before it's over. If, if the Maple Leafs are ahead by five goals with one minute to play, the game is over. That's fantasy, by the way. It seems. If, because there's a clock. But in baseball, there's no clock. So, if I'm the home team, and my team is behind by 10 runs, and we're headed into the bottom of the ninth inning, the last inning, I mean, it's, imp it's not probable that we're going to win the game, but it has happened because it's not over until it's over. So in the life of a disciple of Jesus, it's not over till it's over. Not over till he returns to wrap things up and make all things new. So I don't know what inning it is or what the score is in your own life right now. What I know is at the end of the game, the end of the road, you won't be disappointed that you live by faith. Let's pray. Father, we confess our tendency to think that we can rightly chart our way in this life. And sometimes we, we wonder about the wisdom of your word, your command. We confess that, and we pray that you will forgive us, and we pray that you will, by your Spirit, lead us forward in transformed ways, believing your word, living it faithfully.
In the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.